So we're continuing on. It's our second week of Amazing Grace. As you know, we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians all the way until Christmas. So we're excited about this book and all the things that God is going to show us as we study it. And today, specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10 of chapter 1. And if you were to look at this in a Greek New Testament, you would find that from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one long, run-on sentence. Okay? Now, Paul is not aware of run-on sentences or sentence fragments. Those things came into existence long after Paul. But in the original Greek, 3 through 14 is one entire train of thought. Many people think that it was a hymn that the early church actually sang. So today we're going to be looking at 3 through 10. And next week we'll come back and finish it looking at 11 through 14. This is the Thanksgiving hymn of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we're going to begin in verse 3 today of chapter 1. If you will, look in your Bible there with me. It'll be on the screen as well, or if you have your phone. I don't mind you looking at it on your phone, but we do have security guards walking around ready to see if anyone is on Facebook or the internet, and we will take your phone up if uh, we see you not in the Bible. You can laugh. I'm just kidding. Thank you for laughing. Verse 3, here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And you could see, just as we read that right there, the way that that could flow into a song of praise to God. And that's exactly what the early church did, most likely, with this passage. You will find the phrase, in him or in Christ, 13 times in verses 3 through 14. You could go in and circle or underline every time you see it. What Paul is teaching us here, everything that we're about to unpack in these verses is a result of being in Christ. So it's delivered to believers in Jesus Christ. Now it has application and implications for everyone. But many of your English translations will have in this passage uh, a little title. My Bible says spiritual blessings. Your Bible might say spiritual blessings in Christ. And so we're going to unpack what are these spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about here? Now, there's four of them that we're going to look at. You could identify more, but we're going to unpack the four primary blessings that we find 
in this passage this morning. The first spiritual blessing that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is that he chose us. Now I know that as soon as I start mentioning the word chosen, I have already begin to get the wheels turning in people's minds about this idea of God choosing. What does that mean? Am I one of the chosen ones? The issue of being chosen is a theme that was not just invented by Paul here. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you can remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, who does God choose to make a great nation out of? He chooses Abraham. Was Abraham the only person on the earth? It's okay, you can answer. No, he wasn't. Therefore, he actually chose Abraham. And later on, when God establishes the Israelites as his chosen people, the Israelites also were not the only nation on the earth. So there is an aspect in which those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ have been chosen by God. It runs throughout the narrative of Scripture. Now, in theological circles, this creates a lot of tension and a lot of uneasiness. The uneasiness isn't about the fact that we're chosen. It's about the implications of what being chosen means. Now, this isn't a sermon about election. Because that is not what this text is about. It's more important that we focus... And the reason Paul wrote this to his churches in Ephesus was not to create some type of controversy or strife regarding what it means to be chosen. I promise you, that was not Paul's intent in writing this. His intent was for these believers in Jesus Christ to celebrate and praise God for the fact that he saved them, that they were, in fact, chosen. So we we celebrate that this morning. That as believers in Jesus Christ, God did in fact choose us to be his. He wants everyone to receive the message of salvation. But particularly in these verses, he's asking the church at Ephesus to worship God because you are chosen. And this idea of choosing comes with some responsibility on the part of the ones chosen. It says that we're to be holy and to be blameless. That brings up the debate, since Christians have been around from the beginning of time, how do we be in the world but yet not be of the world? This is the tension that every believer in Jesus Christ wrestles with. And I wish I could give you a solution to this tension. But there are some tensions in life that are best simply managed. Because if you're beginning to tilt too much of the world, and nobody knows about your faith in Christ at your job or in your family or in your neighborhood, you're not in the right. But at the same time, if you isolate yourself from everyone outside the walls of this church, you are being equally as disobedient. We cannot hide in our Christian bubble or subculture. We must go out and make a difference. Many of you probably heard the story this week of a man in Rockwall, Texas, who was driving one day on his way to work, and he saw a 20-year-old kid, 
makes me feel really old when I start calling 20-year-olds kids. Uh, I saw a 20-year-old kid walking in 95-degree heat. So he decided to pick him up. He started to talk with him, and turns out this guy had been walking three miles to work every day and three miles home every day. He works at a Taco Casa. Anybody been to a Taco Casa? All right. It's kind of like Taco Bell, except better. And they picked him up, and he began talking with this kid. And it turns out that this kid was raising money for him to get his own car. And this inspired the man with the beard. I don't really know his name. We'll call him the man with the beard. So he posted about it on Facebook. And people in the community got wind of it, and they heard about it. And a man that ran a local pizza shop put out a collection jar at the front of his restaurant. Within 48 hours, they had raised $5,500 for this kid on the left to get a car. Somebody that worked at a car dealership got wind of this and went and talked to his boss and said, is there anything that we can have here that we can give this kid that costs around $5,500? Well, they bought the boy a Toyota Camry. And there's video of this, you can go find it later, of them delivering the vehicle to the 20-year-old at work at the Taco Casa. Not only did they give him the vehicle, they paid for a full year of insurance and gave him a $500 gas card. This made national news. Now, I have no idea about this man in the beard, whether he's a believer in Christ, whether those that pitched in were believers in Christ, But it was a reminder to me that we need to be in the world. And we don't need to be afraid to reach out to those who need help. And through the process of reaching out, through engaging with our neighbors and our co-workers, we can share the love of Christ with them, just like this man shared the love of Christ with his 20-year-old kid. And it changed his life. It's just a car. Just imagine what the gospel could do in the lives of people. So he does, in fact, choose us. Those that are believers in Christ, we have been chosen. But he's also adopted us. Now, there's something very interesting happens. If you look in your Bible, at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, in most English translations, the in love prepositional phrase comes in a really, really awkward spot. Okay, In my Bible it says, in love, and then verse 5 starts. So it comes at a really awkward place. English translators struggle with where to put that prepositional phrase. Does it belong at the end of verse 4, or should it go with the beginning of verse 5? And depending on where it goes is depending on how you understand the verse. Now they said it at the end of verse 4, but it really belongs better with verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption. So because of his love for us, he adopted us. Adoption is not a concept that we invented. It is a crucial aspect of the gospel message from the beginning. You and I were spiritual orphans. Without a father, without a home, without direction. And God scoops us up and he says, I love you. And I'm going to make you a part of my family. That's why we adopt. Because God adopted us. So there is incredible biblical rationale for us going out and adopting people. 
both domestically and internationally. And if God has placed adoption on your heart, go do it. It's biblical. It's in the gospel. Many of you probably know of the sportscaster, Ernie Johnson Jr. If you've ever watched any TNT NBA coverage, he's like the main broadcaster. And him and his wife have adopted four children from various places. They have two biological children and four adopted children. And I recently read an interview uh, that Ernie had about the experience of adopting their first son. Ernie and his wife now are both believers in Jesus Christ, but at the time of adoption, they actually were not. His wife was watching a 2020 special. Anybody in here still watch 2020? Does 2020 still come on? I'm really showing my ignorance here. She was watching a 2020 special in the early 90s about the condition of orphanages in Romania. She called up her husband and said, I want to do this. And he said, well, go for it. So she went off to Romania. And she was walking through the orphanages. And the lady that was helping her was giving her information on all of the children. They went there looking for a little girl between the ages of three months and a year old. That's kind of the parameters that they had set for themselves. And as she begins walking through the orphanage, and she gets to this one little boy sitting over there in the corner, and the orphanage worker says, oh, you don't want him. No, just keep going. So she finished looking through the orphanage, and she went home that night, and she called her husband, and she said, you know what? I know we had our hearts set on a little girl, but I can't get this thought out of my mind of that orphanage worker telling me that we don't want this little boy sitting over here in the corner. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. He had never left the orphanage from the day he was found on the street in Romania. So they brought him home. The doctors in America said, you know what, this kid's never going to walk, he's never going to talk, he's never going to bond with people. And as these stories often go, he walked, he talked, and he bonded with people. He was later diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, which you know is a horrible disease, and he is now still alive, but he's restricted to a wheelchair or being in bed, and a couple of years ago, he went into the hospital with pneumonia, and they put him on a ventilator. The doctor said he'll never be able to live off the ventilator. And Ernie and his wife said, bring him home. So he lives at home with him. And every day when Ernie wakes up, before he goes into the studio to do a broadcast about basketball, he bathes his child, he feeds him, he changes him. Him and his wife do this day after day after day. And in the interview he says, you know, there is nothing better that a father can do for his son than bless him. Don't miss the connection here. You and I had nothing to offer God. We were spiritually lost. It would have been really easy for God to say, I'm not interested. But he says, you know what? I'm going to take you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to use you to bring myself glory. And every one of us that's a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, we are adopted in Christ Jesus. So we're chosen, we're adopted, 
and we're redeemed and we're forgiven. Now, everyone loves a story of redemption. All the most successful movies and books and articles that you read that have stories of redemption in them, they're popular, okay? There's something about the human soul that loves the idea of someone being redeemed, being brought from a lowly state, and then they become successful. These are movies like Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. These are the movies that Americans especially love. But every one of us that's a believer in Christ has our own redemption story. The theme of redemption runs throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. Go all the way back to the Exodus. When the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And after some convincing, eventually, Pharaoh lets the people go. And they are redeemed out of Egyptian slavery and given freedom. And then later, after some disobedience, the Israelites are exiled into Babylon, and we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which chronicle the Israelites coming back from Babylon back into Jerusalem. So this idea of redemption is laced throughout the pages of Scripture. And it's laced throughout your story as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now there's a little phrase that Paul uses here. We are redeemed through His blood. Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to remember that you were not redeemed through your own effort. You were not redeemed through your kindness, through giving to the poor, through giving to the church, through church attendance. None of those things redeem you. You are only redeemed through the blood of Christ. As I said earlier when we were at the table, the writer of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you contributed to your salvation, then God wouldn't be able to ask of you as much. But since you did nothing to earn it, he can ask your life to follow after him but not only are we redeemed we're redeemed for the purposes of forgiveness you know I go every three or four weeks to Jefferson Healthcare normally it's been a while since I've been but I went to Jefferson Healthcare about three weeks ago and we always go and we sing hymns with the residents there, and then we have a Bible study. Christy, Andrew, myself, Miss Wanda, we all rotate through teaching. I've been teaching there for four or five years. There are some weeks when I go there and I feel like they didn't get a thing out of what I said. But when I was there three weeks ago, I shared with them the story of the parable of the unmerciful servant. You remember the story. The man has a great amount of debt. He goes to the master And he says, I can't pay this. Please help me out here. What does the master do? He erases all of his debt. And that same servant goes to some people that owe him money. And he says, you better pay me up now or I'm going to throw you into prison. They can't pay up. So he throws them into prison. The parable is about forgiveness. And that night... 
I had. More people respond than almost I'd ever had before. Why is that? Because forgiveness resonates with every human being in a very, very powerful way. You know, there are not only spiritual implications to forgiveness, but there are actually physiological things that happen when we forgive or when we withhold forgiveness. If you've ever withheld forgiveness from someone, you know that it leads to anger, anxiety, depression, high blood pressure. I read a story just last week of a lady who had finally decided after 12 years that she would forgive the man who shot her son. And I want to read to you what she says about the physiological difference it made in her life as soon as she finally said, I forgive you. Listen to this. I began to feel this movement in my feet. It moved up my legs and it it moved all the way up my body. And when I felt it leave me, I instantly knew that all the anger and hatred and animosity I had in my heart for you for 12 years was over. I had totally forgiven you. The parable of the unmerciful servant ends by Jesus telling his disciples, if you cannot forgive other people, why should your heavenly father be able to forgive you? I don't want to simplify forgiveness. I know how hard it is to forgive someone when they have wronged you and the damage that can cause you to have. It can affect your psyche, all sorts of issues. But I do know if we have received the forgiveness that Christ has granted us, we have to begin the process of forgiving other people. Not only forgive other people, but go and ask them to forgive us. I've been there. I've held grudges. I've been bitter. I've been angry. And those of you that have been there with me can testify to the fact that it is a miserable way to live your life. I'm not telling you you have to forgive everybody in your life by tomorrow morning. But I'm telling you to begin the process of allowing the Holy Spirit to make you realize that if you can receive the forgiveness of Jesus, you can extend that forgiveness to other people. I often pray, when I'm praying for my son and my daughter, they're three and one, I pray that they would extend grace and mercy to other people the same way that they'll receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. And I pray that in my own life as well. God, as I have freely accepted your grace and mercy, help me to extend that grace and mercy to other people. That's the prayer of my heart. That's the prayer of the heart for my children. That they would be gracious and that they would be merciful. Why? 
Because that's what Jesus did for us. Forgiveness is ours in Christ Jesus. How can we not go and extend it to others? And then the fourth blessing is he revealed his will to us. Now there have never been more books, more sermons, more illustrations about God's will in all of Christianity, okay? This is the question that we're always asking ourselves. What is God's will for my life? If you've ever been a high schooler or a college student trying to figure out what you think God wants you to do, what do you pray? God, show me your will for my life. Maybe you've had a career change in the middle of your life or you want a career change. God, show me your will for my life, okay? We ask ourselves this question all the time. It's a good question. We want to be in God's will. But yet Paul is telling us here that the mystery of his will has been made known to us. It's already there. What Paul is talking about here is God's universal will for all of mankind, not his personal will for what he wants you to do, but his universal will for all mankind. God's universal will for the world is Jesus. That sounds like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? But guess what? That's it. That's why we take the gospel to Zimbabwe. That's why we take the gospel to China and Ghana. That's why we invite kids all over the city to camp in the city. Because God's will for every person's life is Christ. That's it. There's no rocket science. Before the foundation of the world, God knew the plan was Christ. God wasn't invented in Genesis 1. He wasn't invented when the earth was created. We know that God always was. And from the beginning of time, the solution to the problem of our sin was always Jesus Christ. His will for your life has already been revealed. First and foremost, before you wrestle with anything else, get Jesus. Because if Jesus is at the front of your mind and the lens through which you filter every decision and action, you will be in God's will. Because once he becomes Lord of your life and you think through every decision with him at the forefront, you're being obedient to what God has for you to do. The specifics will work themselves out if you focus on the fact that from the beginning, God wanted you to have Jesus. He wants people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group to have Jesus. Do you have 
Jesus. This realization that the gospel message came alive to you in your life. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to live among you and I. Lived a perfect life. Absolutely perfect. No sin. Was arrested. Was beaten. Was spit on. Was crucified. The blood sacrifice on the cross. Dead for three days. And then brought back to life. Now the resurrection is absolutely pivotal to the gospel. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, there is no conquering of death. There is no conquering of sin. The resurrection is not a metaphor. It is not a symbol. It is not an idea. The bodily, real resurrection of Christ is key to the gospel. It's not just an idea. You must believe that it happened. People walked with him, people touched him, people ate with him, people listened to him speak. He was alive. You want evidence? I can give you evidence. Come, I'll give you resources where you can read all the historical evidence of people that said that it happened. We can work through that. The resurrection of Jesus changed the face of of history forever. And it will continue to change history. We might not know what tomorrow brings, but we know that Jesus Christ is on his throne, ruling over this world. No matter what happens in our life, he is king. So I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus in the way that I just explained? Do you know that apart from his blood sacrifice, you cannot have a relationship with God the Father? Do you believe in his crucifixion and his resurrection? And will you confess that and say, yes, I believe? Luke tells us in Acts, whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you bow your head with me this morning? God, thank you for these spiritual blessings that Paul gives us here. God, I pray in the coming days and and week, even during our time of response, that we would meditate and reflect on these blessings. God, if there's anyone in this room that is unsure about their salvation or wants to know more about having a relationship with Jesus, God, work on their heart. God, those in our neighborhood and those that we work with, our family members that don't know you, soften their heart to the gospel. Father, give us a passion for studying your word, for sharing Jesus, and for loving other people only the way that you can. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.